Keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter, from which Jason just read. If you're not there, please turn there. And while you are, I'm, I just want to say that, um, Brandon, it's great to see you today. We love you. We miss you. Thanks for coming back. Come frequently. I also uh, want to just let everyone know that there are many, many families away. I made a list of them at home. It's too long to read. Pray for our church family as they travel and uh, in some cases minister, in other cases just refresh themselves. You have noticed that next Sunday I'm going to begin Teen Sunday again, a practice that we did for years and years and years. It's a great delight. Some of you have wondered, what's that about? It's just very simply an opportunity for me to develop rapport with our middle schoolers and with our high schoolers. Next week we start with the middle schoolers. And then two weeks from next week, we go to the high schoolers. They bring a sack lunch. We'll actually eat together for about a half hour. And then at 1230, roughly, uh, I will begin an hour and a half time of just spending time with them. And in many cases, teaching, teaching them and hopefully evangelizing those who do not yet know the Lord. And then just finally, as you know, today we began our new Disciple U curriculum for this final trimester. There is actually going to be one other opportunity for those who may have an interest. We're not trying to uh, solicit anyone out of a class that you may already be enjoying and looking forward to. But if you would enjoy this, if you think this would be profitable, our brother Dave Owens will be leading a probably a relatively small group up in the uh, conference room, which is eventually where elders and deacons meetings will be held. On the subject of prayer, he's going to be teaching for 15 minutes or so, maybe 20 at the most, from Piper's book, A Hunger for God, and then giving over the rest of the time just for prayer, praying for the ministry of heritage and the spread of the gospel and so forth. So if you would find that profitable, you're welcome to be a part of that, that time of thinking about and actually practicing prayer and probably fasting. So that begins next Sunday morning at 9.30. Now, Jason just read for us Peter's words to his original readers, and he called them exiles. An exile is a person who is not living at home in his own country. That is who and what we are if we are true Christians. We are living in this world as temporary residents. We are, in the words of the writer to the Hebrews, looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and designer is God. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. And by God's grace, we are seeking a homeland. We can confess with the old gospel songwriter and feel compelled to do so from time to time by saying with him, you know, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Though we are citizens of the United States of America and grateful to be such, possessing a good deal of legitimate patriotism, deep down in the recesses of our souls, we desire a better country. To quote again the words of the writer to the Hebrews. And as long as we are here as sojourners, strangers, pilgrims, aliens temporary residents, we are to be on mission. That is what 1 Peter is all about. People who have been separated from this world, living by God's grace, qualitatively different lives, on mission for God. 
And in the near future, we're going to hear about that mission. As I calculate ahead, I think Pastor Mark will be leading us through the passage in chapter 2, where Peter tells us very clearly why we have been redeemed and why we are left here on this earth. Because of this, the title of our series is Sojourn, Living on Mission as Temporary Residents. Now, this morning, it is my privilege to introduce this study, and in doing so, we're going to take an overview of a fairly large chunk of chapter 1. You know what it is already because Jason just read it to you, verses 1 through 9. And first, we're going to consider very briefly in verses 1 and 2, Peter's greeting. And then secondly, we will consider as well, very briefly, what God has done in us, what he is presently doing in us, what he has secured for us, and what he will yet and finally do for us. So, let's jump in and briefly consider, first of all, Peter's greeting, verses 1 and 2. Let me see how brief I can be with this. After identifying himself as the writer, Peter, you know, in those days, uh, they, they just identified who was uh, writing and to whom the letter was written, right up front. It would be like, if we started writing letters that way, we'd say, Ted to John. So immediately, the reader knows who wrote and who he has in mind. This is the Apostle Peter, and I'm glad that it's Peter. I listened to a preacher this week who said, if you uh, won a contest and the reward would be to have a meal with any apostle of your choice, who would you choose to have that meal with? You would think perhaps most people would say the Apostle Paul, but this man suggested that Peter might be a better alternative because Peter's more like us. Paul is just so different. I mean, Paul is like, wow, really? Did God make a man like that? Yes, he did. But when you look at Paul and you Peter and you say, you know, who am I most like? Well, most of us say, I'm like Peter in many regards, weak, um, impetuous, stumbling, sometimes wonderfully helped by God and so forth. I'm glad that Peter's writing this letter to us in a very, very pastoral kind of way. Well, after he identified himself, he identifies his readers, as you notice in verse 1, by calling them elect exiles of the dispersion. What's that? Well, first of all, they are chosen by God. And I'm going to say more about the doctrine of election in a moment. It has to do with his eternal choice of whom he will save. But I want to just for a moment quickly direct your attention to that word exiles again. And Peter describes them as exiles of the dispersion. What is that? Well, because of persecution, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem were dispersed really throughout the known world at that time. And that was good because that's how the gospel came to the known world through this dispersion. It would be like all of the citizens of Owensboro or Davis County somehow being forced to move to uh, Georgia and Mississippi and, and Alabama and South Carolina and then someone writing a letter to the former citizens of our community and we would call them the dispersion. They've been dispersed. So these are the receivers of this letter. The Holman Standard, the Holman Christian Standard Bible in translate this, I think, very helpfully. It just says, to the temporary residents dispersed. I like that, temporary residents. That's how those translators captured the idea of exiles. But it can be translated in so many different ways, as I've just mentioned. So these readers are, first of all, elect. They are, secondly, exiles. They are thirdly dispersed. And I just want to suggest that that's really who we are. Circumstances are different. Where are Christians today? Are they focused in one city, in one state, one nation? No, they're dispersed all over the world. And we are exiles. We are aliens. Alien seems a little strange, a little weird in, in terms of the modern connotation of that word. We're pilgrimers. pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're 
temporary residence. That's who we are. We have been dispersed by God because of his kindness in electing us. Now, I want to expand upon what Peter expands upon, namely, how did these people become exiles? How did they become elect exiles? How do we become temporary residents? In other words, I am going to seek to answer the question because I think Peter gives us the answer in verse 1. How do you explain the origin of your Christianity? Most of you, as Jonathan prayed, are here today um, as those who trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You're believers. Your sins have been forgiven. Christ died to take the punishment that your sins deserve. He has given to you a perfect righteousness. You are forever forgiven. You are bound for certain for heaven. How did that happen? Where did that originate? And the answer is in God's electing grace. That's what the very first verse tells us. To those who are elect. And Peter goes on after mentioning the word elect to explain what this election was rooted in and how it was applied to their lives in time and what it was designed to produce or result in. And that's what I want us to think about for a few moments. So, If the origin of our salvation is an election, and it is, what is election rooted in? What causes election? Why did God choose a people? Why did he choose you? Peter answers the question. He says, to those who are elect of the dispersion, and he names the regions. By the way, that's just modern Turkey. Those those regions, they're not cities, they're regions of modern Turkey. So if you just sort of parenthesize that, you can make the sentence read like this, to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, if you know anything about theology, you know that the doctrine of election is a controversial doctrine. There are people who hate it, which is an irony, because if you're a Christian... How can you hate the very reason you're a Christian? How can you hate what God did in order to make you a Christian? It's a wonderful teaching. It's very humbling to our human nature and our pride. It's very God-exalting. It's very reassuring. It's very comforting. And I want to argue before this message is over that if you are going through any kinds of trial, as his readers were, nothing will better help you face those trials and go through them for the glory of God than remembering who you are and how you became who you are. Because if you became a Christian by a sheer act of your own will, your own fallen, depraved, free will, which would never be interested in the things of God. But if you believe that, you must also believe that you may choose in time to opt out of it. Because ultimately, it would mean you became a Christian because of you. But you did not become a Christian, nor did I, because of ourselves. It's a wonderful doctrine. But those who despise it like to pounce on that little expression, oh, that's the key to the solution right there, according to to the foreknowledge of God. Yes, I believe in election. It simply means that God looked down through the tunnels of time, through his divine telescope, and he identified who it was that was going to believe in him. He knew every single one of them because his foreknowledge is absolute and perfect, and he just said, okay, that one's going to choose me, I'll choose him. She's going to choose me, I'll choose her. Those people are going to choose me, I'll choose them. And he chooses those who choose him. Well, if they're going to choose you anyway, 
why do you need to choose them? They're already going to choose you. That puts salvation back into the hands of man. And it's a, it's a cheap, shallow, superficial effort to get around the humbling truth that God has chosen a people known only to himself who from our perspective are without number. It is a vast number of people for reasons found solely in his own heart. And there was nothing wrong with it because everybody deserved to go to hell. It's no more wrong for God to choose an elect than it is for someone to decide to adopt a child or two or three out of an orphanage. And no one in that community has the right to say, what's wrong with those people? They can't do that. They've got to choose everybody. That's wrong. That's discriminating. But you see, grace and mercy can discriminate. Because God has no obligation to save anyone. The wonder of election is not that he didn't choose everyone, but that he chose anyone. That's the wonder. That's the amazing thing. We should never be mad at God about the doctrine of election. We should be glad in God because of the doctrine of election. God didn't choose anybody because of what he foresaw in them, because all he could foresee in any of his people was sin. None of us were more deserving of his grace than others. If we were, then at the end of the day, throughout eternity, we will have to take turns worshiping in heaven. We'll worship God for a while. He'll worship us. And we'll all be able to stand up and say, yes, I'm thankful for God's grace and mercy, but he did see in me some things he didn't see in other people. Who would dare to say such a thing? All God sees in any of us prior to what he does for us is sin and hell-worthiness. No, the word foreknowledge doesn't mean God's pre-science. It doesn't mean that he knows beforehand. Does God have that kind of knowledge? Yes, absolutely. He possesses an absolute foreknowledge from the standpoint of pre-science. He does know everything. But when the word foreknow is used in the Bible with regard to people, listen to me carefully. When it's used with regard to people, it carries the meaning of love and affection, not mere cognizance. When the Bible tells us, then Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. What do you think that means? He went up and introduced himself and said, My name is Adam. What is your name? Oh, good to meet you, Eve. I think maybe we should get married. And he became acquainted with her. And lo and behold, she was pregnant. No, 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 no. It means that he entered into the most intimate, affectionate, loving relationship that he could possibly have with her. And the fruit of that was a child. When God says to the nation of Israel, you only have I known among all the peoples of the earth, if you take the word no to mean cognizance, then you have to conclude God was not aware of the Egyptians. God was not aware of the Jebusites and the Hittites and all of the rest of the peoples of the earth. And then, whoa, there's a people I never knew about. I didn't know you existed. Isn't that stupid? Yeah, it's stupid. Kind of a crude word, but that's what it is. It's stupid. When God says, you only have I known among all the peoples of the earth, he's talking about an intimate, affectionate, loving relationship. When Paul says the Lord knows those who are his and let all who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, is he talking about cognizance as if to imply, but he doesn't know who aren't his? No. He's talking about a loving relationship. That's why Paul says those whom God foreknew, he predestined. But when it comes to what then the word foreknowledge often carries the meaning of knowing beforehand. So what am I saying to you, dear people? 
I'm saying that our election and all election is rooted in the eternal love of God. Why would he love us? We have no idea. He said to the nation of Israel, I did not choose you because you were more in, many, more in number than others. There was nothing about the Hebrew people that made them more attractive than other people. He says, I chose you because I loved you. And when it's all said and done, we have to just say, mystery of mysteries, wonder of wonders, that God would set his love upon the likes of me. I cannot believe it. I'm overwhelmed with it. I know this. It wasn't because he saw in me anything he couldn't find in someone else. He didn't see that I would believe because I wouldn't believe we are all dead in trespasses and sins and we cannot believe apart from regenerating grace and he can regenerate whomever he wishes whenever he wishes. Now, I hope you don't hate that doctrine. I hope you love it because if you're a believer, that's why you're a believer. It isn't you. It isn't your free will. Though you do have a will, a real will. But our wills were sinful and they only make sinful choices until they're acted upon by God. He works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's the order. That's the theological order. So this wonderful election, which explained why Peter's first readers were Christian exiles in an alien world, was because of his election rooted in foreknowledge. Now, what is it unto? In, in other words, what did God have in mind in setting his eternal love and affection upon a certain people and choosing them? He had in mind converting them. He had in mind delivering them. He had in mind changing them. He had in mind separating them from this world. And I'm going to fix on that word separate for just a moment. Because you'll see in the text, verse 1, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, listen, in sanctification of the Spirit. Now, the word sanctification, $64,000 theological term, simply means the setting apart of something. If I'm to take this glass of water, which I rarely drink, and put it over here, I am separating it. And if I hadn't, taken a drink out of, I might have said, Dave Goodwin, I have separated that for your use. Would you have any problems drinking after me? Good. But it would have been easier. My wife and I were sharing the other night, and she said, I hope there's no backwash in that water. And uh, I said, honey, you're going to kiss me before the night's over. What's the difference? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she, was, she was just kidding. Um, I've just separated that from this context. Becoming a Christian is coming under the powerful grace of God, which through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the new birth, he so changes us on the inside and changes our desires that he takes us out of this world, not in the sense of off of the planet, but in the sense of departing from its values. And he makes us and he sets us apart for himself. And then, and then he spends the rest of our lives taking stuff out of us and making us like his son. The one is initial, initial sanctification. When we're converted, the other is progressive. It's continuous. Is that, that deep and complex? I don't think so. So when God elects a people rooted based upon his eternal love for them, and it goes into action. What does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit into their lives through the preaching of the gospel, though that's not found in verse 1. And he causes them to turn from their sins and to flee to the Savior and to abandon their former way of living so that it is true of them what Paul says is true of all Christians. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away and become, behold, all things are become new. We're new people. We have new values. 
We have new desires. We have new aspirations. We have new strength. We have a new attitude towards sin. We have a new attitude toward God's law. That law which we hated before, we weren't subject to it. We were hostile toward it. We say, I love it. I love to do the will of God. He wrote it on my heart. I'm a new person. So election is unto sanctification, that is, conversion, salvation, the new birth, changed life, produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens to people who experience this powerful work of the Holy Spirit in their lives? I'll tell you what happens to them. They run. Run? Yeah, they run. Where do they run to? What do they run from? They run from the wrath of God, and they run to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I am at your service. They say in the words of Saul of Tarsus, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I want to give you my life as a life of perpetual obedience to you. And Jesus, I come to you because I need you to apply the merit of your atonement to my sins. My sins need an atonement. My sins need to be paid for. My soul needs to be ransomed. Would you please sprinkle me with your blood? Remember how sprinkling was symbolic of atonement in the Old Testament? Look at verse, verse uh, 2 again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's what election is rooted in, and this is what it is unto, sanctification of the Spirit. And why does God set us apart and do this great work in our souls by the power of the third person of the Trinity? So that we go to the second person of the Trinity. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. There it is. Now, did you see the Trinity? You see the three persons of the Trinity? God the Father elects. God the Son redeems by his blood. God the Holy Spirit regenerates. You say, well, you just said it in a different order. I did. Because that's the way it, that's the way it happens historically. In eternity, God elects. In history, Christ atones. In time, sinners are born again. But in terms of our personal experience, the electing grace of God sends the Spirit of God to regenerate us so that we flee to the Redeemer. And that's the order of our text. Election unto the great separating work of the Holy Spirit who brings us into an obedient relationship with Jesus Christ who sprinkles us with his blood. There's my hasty, too abbreviated treatment of verses 1 and almost the entirety of verse 2. What else does he do? He gives them a benediction. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I noticed as Jonathan prayed this morning that he made reference again to both grace and peace. And all I can say, besides that this is a benediction, and by the way, benedictions are found on the front end and on the back end of almost all of the epistles. When, when, when if I were to ask you what's a benediction, you'd say it's the, it's the last word spoken at a service. That doesn't sound like the last word. It's in verse 2. It's almost the first word. But there's a benediction at the end of the letter too. And in 15 of the epistles, there's a benediction on the front end and a benediction on the back end. Why did I tell you that? I don't know. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> now, I think I told you that because sometimes we start, we develop practices. It's just human nature that we sort of raise to the level of creed and we put them in the category of the regulative principle, which is we must worship God the way he requires us to worship him, and we must. We must do all of the things he tells us to do. We must not do any of the things he forbids us to do, and we may do those things which we find generally um, approved by the Scripture and 
useful. Benedictions are not commanded to be given in churches. There's no command to do a benediction. But it's a wonderful thing, because you know what it means? It means a good word. And this is what we want to hear from our friends. I hope God's grace and his peace is multiplied to you. And isn't that what's beautiful about the Christian life? Grace is multiplied to the true Christian. And peace is multiplied to the true Christian. We just keep getting more and more grace from God. And the more grace we get from God, the more peace we have. And there is, with regard to peace, an objective peace. That is, we now have a new relationship with God. We were, we were alienated from him. Now we are reconciled to him. We have peace with God. There is no more judgment hanging over our heads. We are at one with him. He is our God. We are his people. We have a relationship of reconciliation. That's real. That's objective. But guess what? Something happens in our souls. Something we feel. We feel that God is no longer angry with me. God does love me. I love him. It's an inward feeling. Is it subjective? Yes. Is it somewhat mystical? Yes. Is it emotional? Yes. Peace is an emotion. And as we will see in just a few moments, so is joy. They're emotions. God made us emotional people. And theologians speak about the emotivity of God. God himself describes himself as a God who has feelings. They're just not subject to sin like ours are. So there's the greeting. And I, even though I said it was briefly, I've taken too much time, which means now we've got to go really fast. Having greeted his readers, he proceeds to tell us what it is that God uh, is actually doing in our lives. What is it? If what I have been seeking to open up has to do with how we are described spiritually, the elect of God, who have been separated by the Holy Spirit and come into an obedient relationship with Jesus Christ and under the blessing of his atonement. What are these words? Well, if the first section was about how we are to be described spiritually, this is how we are to be described experientially. Now, there's a big word, okay? I'll grant you. But it just means experience. He's going to tell us now what actually has happened in our lives. What has God actually done in and for us? What is he doing in us right now? And what will he do for us before it's all over? That's experience. And I want you to think experientially. I want you to start asking yourself, has this happened? Have I experienced this? Is this real to me? Because I'm not sure about the election thing. You know, I hear that there are books, symbolically speaking, written, in which the names of God's chosen people have been written, get this, from the foundation of the world. How can that be? Because God knows. And if he knows, they're certainly going to be saved, otherwise his knowledge is wrong. Some people find comfort again in four nights. Well, he just knows what's going to happen. And I want to say, I hope not in a smart way, not in a um, sarcastic way. Then if he knows it's going to happen, it's really going to happen, isn't it? Then it's absolutely certain, isn't it? It's absolutely certain. Yes, it is. But I want you to be asking yourself, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? You, you should have a head start. You should be able to say, well, first of all, has my life been separated like that glass of water? Can I look at my life and say, God has really done something to me. He took me out of my former way of life, and he did 
He did bring me to trust in Jesus, and as best I know, he is my only hope, and I want to live in obedience to him, and I'm trusting in his atonement. Good, that's great. Let me take you further. Here's what actually happens. Let's go back to the sanctifying work of the Spirit for a minute, because that's what Peter comes back to in verse 3. Notice he starts with a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like Ephesians 1. That's a doxology. It just means... It's, it's giving glory to God. The Greek word for glory is doxa. Why is Peter so excited? Why is he worshiping God? And why is he in particular worshiping God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because of his great mercy. Look at the rest of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. Now, what has God the Father done out of the greatness of his mercy? Here it is. Here it is. He, he has caused us to be born again. Did you hear that? How do people get born again? They just choose to get born again? Here's what you do to get born again. No, you can't born yourself again. Nobody chooses to be born again. You do choose to trust in Christ. Don't misunderstand me. When the gospel is preached, you have a choice. You reject that gospel or you embrace it and choose to make Christ your only hope for salvation. I'm I'm not talking about the exercise of the will. We do exercise our wills, but we just don't ever exercise them in the right direction until God first acts upon those wills because they are sinful. But the stress of Scripture is this. God caused us to be born again. God caused us. God caused us to be born again. That's what happens. The new birth. And he does this out of his great mercy. And when he did this, he did this with a view to actually giving us a living hope. Notice that? We are born again to a living hope. What is that living hope based upon? That living hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is the living hope focused upon? Now, follow me. I know I'm getting a little, you know, I'm making you think, okay? What is the focus of the living hope? It's a hope. By the way, the Bible, when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't mean I hope so. I hope it's not going to rain a lot more today. I hope our team will win. No, no. Hope in the Bible is a certain, confident, persuaded conviction that something is really, truly going to happen. What is the focus of the hope? Well, look at the focus of the hope is to an inheritance. Verse 4, we've been born again to a living hope. Just skip through the resurrection for a moment. To an inheritance. What's the inheritance? Eternal life. Heaven, the renewed earth, glorification, sinless communication with God and all of his people throughout all eternity, the new Jerusalem, no more war, no more sickness, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more trial. All of that's wrapped up into the inheritance, the the final salvation. That's the focus of the hope. But what, what secured that hope? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. See that? We've been born again to a, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead? No hope. I mean, seriously, if you understood the purpose of the atonement, i.e., namely, to make a perfect satisfaction to God the Father for the sins of his people, those who would trust in him, so that, he, so that his wrath would be satisfied and he could be reconciled to them. And you understand that was the purpose. The disciples didn't have a real, real, real clear notion of that, but they had some notion of it. 
And so Jesus says, here's the deal. I'm going to die and I'm going to receive the wrath of God due to your sins. And if God raises me on the dead in three days, you can be assured of this, fellas. He accepted my sacrifice on your behalf. But if you hover around that tomb for more than three days and I don't come forth, game's over. No salvation. It didn't work. God wasn't satisfied. And you will have no hope, certainly not a living hope, of any future inheritance with God because it means your sins have not yet been paid for. You can't pay for them except by going to hell. There goes your hope. It's a living hope grounded in the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which was declared to be perfect and acceptable to God by the resurrection of Jesus. So the focus of the hope is eschatological. That's the third big, big word. Not too many big words. Okay, this one is the most technical. Eschatological just means future. The future hope. It hasn't yet come to pass. The future hope is an inheritance. It's in the process of coming to pass. We have been saved. We are being saved. We're not yet completely saved. Is there anybody here who thinks they're completely saved? Then why did you get impatient with your spouse this week? Why did you, why did you fudge just a little bit in that story? Why did you look upon that other person with jealousy and envy? Why were you so proud? No, you're not entirely saved. But look at the last part of verse 9. I mean, I know I'm just jumping ahead because I can see what's happening here with time. Look, well, I'll read verse 8. Though you have not seen him, has anybody here literally physically seen Jesus? No. You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. You presently rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining, you are in the process of obtaining. It hasn't come to its completion, its full culmination yet, but you are in the process of obtaining the outcome of your faith. That is the end result, the final, ultimate triumph of your faith, which is what? The salvation of your souls. Well, are you, is your soul saved or not? Yes. Is it being saved still right now? Yes. Is it completely fully saved right now? No. Will it someday be completely saved? Yes. That's the focus of the inheritance. And because of this, this is the whole point, and I'm just going to just basically forget about my notes now because I don't want to be abusive to you like I usually am. That's why those of you who are going through trials can rejoice. I, I entitled this sermon, Good Grief, if you happen to have seen it on the e-bulletin. Good Grief. Subtitle, How to Rejoice in the Midst of Trial. Now, do trials cause grief? Please look at... Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. And by the way, little while, good news, bad news. Good news, it's just a little while. Bad news, it's the rest of life. It's until Jesus comes back. Now, it's true that though the trials last throughout the entirety of your life, sometimes... They're very intense, and they're usually brief and a little while. But Peter's talking about the whole of life. And someday we're going to look back and we're going to say, it was nothing. It was nothing. It was just a life. I got all eternity now before me. And I just suffered for life. Just, just life. What is life in the light of eternity? 
I don't remember what Jonathan's illustration was on the night of Ezra's funeral, but it was something about from wall to wall, which I think actually is a Piper thing. But if you look at this whole long line that demonstrates eternity and imagine it being endless and then just put the tiniest little sliver in there somewhere, that's life. So you all are going through trials. Is there a person here in this church that has no trial? Maybe a few, maybe a few. But I know most of you well enough that I can actually identify some of the trials. I, I literally can look. I can look at Martha Ryle and know some stuff. That I, know Bill's, I know what Bill's going through. I know what Maury's going through. I, all I have to do, I know what Charlotte's going through. She has diverticulitis and every week of her life endures pain. Okay? I can, I can pretty much assure all of us that all of us have some trials. If we don't, they're just probably just around the corner. I'm looking at a daughter and a son-in-law who just gave up a beloved son. Is that a trial? That's a big trial. We all have trials. I have trials. What, what enables us to look... And those trials cause grief, by the way. Did you see the end part of verse 6? Um, for a little while, as was necessary, God's the one who figures out whether it's necessary. And, of course, it's always necessary because all things work together for the good of those because God's up to something good. You have been what? Grieved by what? Various trials. Aren't you glad it says various? Because if it's just physical maladies like Bill struggles with constantly with regard to, you know, heart issues or Charlotte with diverticulitis or Joy with an unidentified lung disorder, then the rest of us say, well, I don't seem to have a physical problem, so I guess there's no comfort in that passage to me about trials. No, he says trials, various trials. Really, the Greek word actually literally means multicolored. And what do trials cause? Grief. 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 But guess what, folks? Grief is good. Good grief. Yeah. All grief for a believer is good. That's why he says in verse uh, 6, in this you rejoice. In what? in your trials. Are you kidding me? Christians rejoice in their trials? Yep. You know why? Because it gets their minds off of now and makes them think of later. It gets their minds on the inheritance. It gets their minds on the full salvation. It takes their minds back to election. I can make it through this. God set his love upon me from all eternity. He sent his son to die for me. He sent the Holy Spirit to sanctify me. He has caused me to be born again unto a living hope. I have a living hope. I can make it through this because it's only for a little while. Well, what if it's the rest of your life? That's only a little while. I have an inheritance. Well, how solid and sure is that inheritance? It is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for me. You mean your inheritance is that sure? Yes. And guess what else? I am being kept for it. It is being kept for me. I am being kept for it because Peter says that the faith that I have, which in time after testing will prove to be genuine like gold that is heated in the furnace is made more and more pure. My faith will not only be tested, but it will be proven to be true faith for my honor and my glory and my praise, but especially for the glory and the honor of God's praise. It's absolutely certain. And Peter said that, that I, I am being kept. My faith is being guarded kept by the power of God. Now, wait a minute. What's being kept, the inheritance or me? Both. The inheritance is undefiled and uncorruptible and 
unfading, and my faith, because it is a gift from God. That's what the Bible teaches, doesn't it? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift that God gave me, he preserves, and my faith continues. That's called the doctrine of perseverance. We must persevere, but we shall, because God gives persevering grace. So back to the question, how do you make it through these trials? Through the living hope. Through the living hope. Through the living hope, which is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, proving that his atonement was accepted by God. What is the focus of that living hope? An inheritance. You really believe in it? How long are you going to believe in it the rest of my Christian life? How do you know that? Because God's going to keep my faith. What's that cause you to do, brother, sister? Does it just merely enable you to persevere and make it and grind your teeth and somehow I'm going to make it through this deal one way or the other? No! Causes me to rejoice! In this you rejoice. You, we don't just rejoice in the midst of our trials. We rejoice because of our trials. Because they take our mind off of us. And they put our focus on what Jesus died to secure and purchase for me. Full salvation. And you know, the word for joy there is an interesting and very, very rich word. It would be pronounced agaliastha. But that doesn't make any difference how it's pronounced. Do you know what's really important? Is the connotation of that word. It's a very rich word. You know what the word rejoice literally means? It means to be jubilant, with thankful exultation. It means to be full of joy. It means to be overjoyed. It means to leap for joy. Arndt and Gingrich define it as sometimes shouting for joy. And you see it in verse 6, and you see it again in verse 8, but the other thing you see in verse 8 is, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. Same word, now but notice, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When is the last time any of us, especially this poor preacher, could honestly say, at that time or presently, I have a joy that is inexpressible? And full of glory. When people come in and listen to Heritage Baptist Church worship in song, do they conclude that these people have a joy that is inexpressible? They're just doing the best they can do to try to get it out, and it's full of glory. You know, that the dominant emotion in worship, and I choose my words carefully. If you want to discuss this with me and disagree, you're very welcome to, and I'm happy to hear your perspective. But I think I'm prepared to defend biblically that the dominant emotion in worship is joy, dominant, predominant, that the normal emotion in worship, are we to be humble? Always. Are we to be sad and sorrowful and repentant? Frequently. But generally speaking, and I ask you folks this question in order to make my point, who are you? Who are we? Biblically speaking, who are we? We're the people of God. Did you hear what you just said? Could you be more precise and theological? We're the elect. What? God set his love on these people from all eternity and sent his son to die for them and sent his Holy Spirit into them to bring them to life so that they would flee to Jesus and has adopted them into his family and has promised to be their provider and to be faithful and to guide them through all of their life and has given them his word and given them the fellowship of believers and given them the local church and given them the ordinances like one of them will observe tonight. He's given us all of these things. We're certain for heaven The enemy's head has been crushed. 
We will be raised from the dead because Jesus, the first fruits, was raised from the dead. We're bound for heaven. And we aren't exuberant. And joy is not the dominant emotion of our Christian life. You say, well, Pastor, I think you're talking about emotionalism. You're right. I am. Because guess who made us emotional people? And the purpose of truth is to touch the emotions. And by the way, part of the purpose of music is to stir the emotions. One of the brothers said to me recently, he said, you know, I don't want to just be stirred by the truth. I do want the truth. We need to be content, truth-driven people forever, ever, ever. But I want the music to stir me. And I could just hear some people saying, that's emotionalism. Music shouldn't do that to you. Oh, really? Why'd God create it? Just so that we could have something to sing words to? Really? When the prophet of God was so angry that he couldn't oblige the request of the wicked king to prophesy, he finally gave in. He said, I will do it on these grounds only if you will provide a minstrel for me. I need to hear some music. He didn't ask for a choir. There were no words. God has ordained music to stir us. So, yes, they affect the emotions. God willed it to be so. Is there such a thing as emotionalism that we should avoid? To be sure. But the opposite extreme should be avoided as well, and that is, oh, I'm scared to death of emotions. Will you please tell me what joy is? Take it out and weigh it for me, if you will, please, and tell me how much your joy weighs. Say, I can't do that. Why? Because it's an inward thing. It's subjective. It's It's mysterious. It's an emotion. I want this church to sing to God with emotion. I want us to cry for our sins with emotion. And I want us to rejoice over our salvation with emotion. Here's what I want. I want us to sing and to worship with a joy. Can a person dare to say this? that is inexpressible and full of glory. Yes. That's why God chose us. That's why he regenerated us. That's why he brought us to Christ. And those are the people who can, who can sojourn in a grievous, sorrowful, trial-filled, wicked, vile, opposing world in such a way as to make Christianity look attractive. And as I said, we're going to see that we are sojourners. We are temporary residents on mission. And the mission is to declare the glories of our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage, which uh, I would be the first to acknowledge has not been adequately dealt with. And so little justice has been done to its glory, and yet we believe that what has been said and thought is, is found in the text. And we pray that you will help us to remember who we are. We are, by your grace, elect exiles who have been called by the Holy Spirit into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and given a living hope concerning an inheritance that is absolutely certain. Please help the dear people in our church who are going through various trials and struggles, some physical, some circumstantial, some having to do with financial pressures, some having to do with marriage problems, some having to do with children problems, some having to do with employment problems, some having to do with depression. Lord, you know what the trials are. And we simply pray that you will help all of us to rejoice in the midst of our grief with a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory because our eyes are really fixed on something that's going to happen before we could believe it. 
the complete final salvation of our souls. Lord, be gracious to any here who've never trusted in Jesus. They're going through trials too, but they have no hope. They have a hope, but it's not a living hope. It's a false hope. It's a deceiving hope. It's a man-given hope. It's not a God thing. And they, they have it robbed from them again and again and again and never really quite figure out that none of their hopes are living because they don't yet know you. Be gracious. May today be a day of salvation for some in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.